Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this special crossover episode of Pax Britannica. I'm often asked which history podcasts I listen to, and one of my favourites is Pax Britannica, a history podcast on the British Empire. Season 2 has just finished, and it covered the absolutely fascinating events of the English Civil War. Of course, it culminated in the trial and execution of King Charles I. Sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? Given all of the comparisons made between the French Revolution and the events in England a century prior, I have loved Sam's retelling of the so-called Wars of the Three Kingdoms. Season 3 has just started, and it's going to cover all things Cromwell, with a little bit of Dutch and Caribbean conflicts just to add some extra spice. Now, you'll hear from Sam shortly, and in this episode, he's going to explore the trial and execution of King Charles I. I really enjoyed this episode, and in particular, being able to compare the experiences of Charles I and Louis XVI. For all the comparisons, you'll soon discover that their final days actually looked a little different. From the trial's proceedings to the nature of the court, you'll see some notable differences, as well as some familiar patterns. Speaking of familiar patterns, a big thank you to everyone supporting Grey History on Patreon. A reminder that if you can't wait for the next episode of Grey History, episode 58, The Faction Menace, is already available for patrons with early access. That's the true revolutionary tier and above. Furthermore, all patrons currently have access to half a dozen full-length bonus episodes, and I'm currently seeking questions for a Patreon-only question and answers episode. So follow the links in the show notes, on the website, or just Google Grey History Patreon. Come join the fun and support the show today. Anyway, that's enough from me, so please enjoy this amazing episode of Pax Britannica, and I'll let Sam take it away. Hello and welcome to a guest episode from Pax Britannica. As listeners of Grey History, you've heard all about the trial and execution of Louis XVI. Well, Pax Britannica has just covered the trial and execution of Charles I, King of England, Ireland and Scotland. What follows is a special merge of my episodes on that trial and execution. We pick up after the purged House of Commons, the so-called rump, establishes a high court of justice to put the king on trial for treason, to the horror of many moderate parliamentarians. If you enjoy it, go to pod.link slash Pax, or search Pax Britannica in whatever app you're listing on right now. With that, please enjoy. One of the ironies of this period is that many of the moderate parliamentarians who opposed the horrific idea of regicide had laid the ideological framework for it in previous years. For starters, the act of fighting a rebellion and civil war against the king raised some awkward questions about the nature of monarchy, the right of resistance, and the position of the king. When the fighting was over, what would that position look like? 
Throughout the fighting, parliamentary rhetoric, in Parliament and in pamphlets, associated Charles with tyranny, emphasised the contractual nature of government, and insisted that sovereignty was, at the very least, shared between the people and the king. Throughout all these years of civil war, people had raised the possibility that kings could be killed, either in battle or otherwise, and this was generally a very small minority, and those who heard or read these ideas usually reacted with shock and horror at the very idea. But as the war dragged on, attitudes hardened, and the idea continued to gain adherence. I do need to emphasise, though, that this was still a very minority opinion. These arguments, these rhetorical flourishes, these callbacks to the ancient world, opened a door which moderates would later wish they had kept firmly closed, and many notable opponents of regicide paved the way for it with their earlier radicalism. For example, William Prynne wrote a pamphlet in 1643 which supported the right of a people to resist the tyranny of a monarchy, but also contained arguments for the punishment and deposition of a tyrannical monarch, and justified the act of tyrannicide. He was later appalled when others took the spirit of his arguments to, in their mind, the logical conclusion, and actually carried it out. The historian David Wotton cleverly noted that for all that moderate parliamentarians were horrified at the use of the headsman's axe in January 1649, many of them helped sharpen it. But opposition to regicide was not limited to those MPs purged from Parliament by Colonel Pride. Even on the Army Council, there were arguments in favour of sparing Charles Stuart's life. Some of these arguments were based on the Solemn League and Covenant, which expressly bound those who swore to it to preserve the king's life and position. Others noted that killing the king would be deeply unpopular within England, throughout the other two kingdoms, and further afield. It was incredibly likely that taking the king's head would spark another surge of royalist riots and rebellions. The taboo of killing a king also lay heavily on the thoughts of army officers. He was an anointed king, it just wasn't done. And then, of course, there was the inconvenient element of kingship, that the instant one monarch died, their heir took their place. That heir, Prince Charles, was at large in mainland Europe, and he was already the centrepiece of a growing royalist-in-exile community. Prince Charles had already meddled in English affairs during the Second Civil War, granting commissions to royalists and giving them legitimacy, and he'd recently appointed Prince Rupert of the Rhine as an admiral and sent him raiding parliamentarian shipping. If Charles died, that turbulent prince would instantly be promoted to king in exile. The royalist cause would gain a martyr, and the young king would become a very attractive candidate for alliances and support, as much from the rivals of the Stuart kingdoms as from their friends. On the 9th of January, 1649, the Commons voted to remove the name of the Sovereign from all legal proceedings, and a new design for the Great Seal of England was approved, which, coincidentally, removed any mention of the King, and instead showed the symbol of the House of Commons, inscribed with the phrase, In the first year of freedom, by God's blessing restored, 1648. Jonathan Healy notes that, whatever the hopes of moderates, the rump was preparing for a kingless government. The High Court of Justice, which would put the King on trial, was meant to be made up of 135 commissioners. It was also meant to have representatives from across the social orders, and both expectations crashed and burned almost immediately. 
The three Lord Chief Justices who were meant to oversee the court refused to take part in this illegal and blasphemous farce, as did the half-dozen peers appointed to the body. Twenty-nine officers of the army were appointed, and this included Cromwell and Ireton, as well as Sir Thomas Fairfax. But even among the officers, when it came to actually putting the king on trial, many pulled back. Colonel Algernon Sidney, the governor of Dover Castle, was appointed to the court, but he refused. His refusal famously stated that the king could be tried by no court, and especially not this judicial travesty. More embarrassingly, Sir Thomas Fairfax, now Lord Fairfax, bowed out of the proceedings after attending just a single session. I've seen it argued that he hoped to be a moderate voice on the panel, but quickly found that many of his fellow judges were out for blood, and he refused to condone it with his presence. Still, a determined corps of officers and MPs kept proceedings going. Cromwell and Ireton were among these officers, of course, and they were joined by civilians like the radical MP Henry Martin and the preacher Hugh Peters. These men worked day and night between the formation of the court and the morning of the 20th of January, when their last pre-trial meeting was interrupted by the news that the king had arrived. Cromwell went to the window and watched as the king disembarked from a barge on the Thames and climbed the steps into his newest gilded cage. And this was when he reportedly realised that, for all their planning, they still hadn't worked out what they would say to the king if he questioned their authority. On what grounds did they claim they could judge him? Henry Martin then piped up. They would simply inform the king that they acted, quote, in the name of the commons in Parliament assembled and all the good people of England. It was shaky legal ground, but so was everything the army and their allies had done over the last two months, and it would have to do because they were out of time. Last week, I mentioned how a new Agreement of the People was drafted by a committee including army officers and civilian levellers. Then it was presented to the Council of the Army for further revision, and this had angered the leading leveller, John Lilburn, but the officers weren't too fussed and made the changes they wanted. On the 20th of January 1649, the new draft, known as the Officers' Agreement to distinguish it from the other versions, was presented to the Rump House of Commons as a basis for a new constitution for England. The MPs gratefully took it, ordered it printed, and then placed it to one side, never to be touched on again, because the trial of the century was about to begin. At 2pm on the 20th of January 1649, 68 commissioners, dressed in black robes, formally entered Westminster Hall and took their places. This was the centre of English justice, the home of the central courts of England's legal system. As the judges marched in, the sword of state was carried before them. The presiding judge, the Cheshire attorney John Bradshaw, took his place in the centre of the desk, and he looked out at the court from over the parliamentary mace which was nestled on a velvet cushion. Above the commissioners was a coat of arms, not the royal arms, but the cross of St George, the symbol of England and of its people. Directly in front of Bradshaw sat an empty chair, awaiting the defendant. Lining the room were 120 soldiers armed with pikes and halberds. Filling the stands and galleries of the hall were hundreds of spectators and reporters. Several were licensed journalists drawn from across the political spectrum. One staunch royalist, one official parliamentary reporter, and several others who could be described as sympathetic to Parliament, but not officially affiliated. 
This was to be a display of popular sovereignty and public justice. But was it also a show trial? As the clerk began the roll call, the first name on the list was, who else, but the commander-in-chief of the new model army, Lord General Sir Thomas Fairfax. In a rather awkward moment, the only answer the clerk received was a shout from the gallery. He has more wit than to be here, shouted Lady Fairfax, his wife, to scattered laughter. The clerk carried on, noting the attendance of Oliver Cromwell, Henry Ireton, and Henry Martin. By the time he'd finished the list and confirmed the attendance of just over half the appointed commissioners, the man of the hour appeared. Charles Stuart, King of England, Ireland and Scotland, entered the hall, flanked by twelve halberdiers of the new model army. He was dressed in his position as a Knight of the Garter, his respect for the conservative, aristocratic traditions of England on full display. He walked with his silver-tipped cane, and when he came to a stop at the end of the hall, he refused to doff his cap to the judges, and instead stared at them, sternly, at the men who presumed to judge him. John Bradshaw opened the proceedings. Charles Stuart, King of England. The commons of England have constituted this high court of justice before which you are now brought, and you are to hear your charge after which the court will proceed. The lead prosecutor, John Cook, stood to the side of the king's chair and began to read the charge. He only got a few words in before Charles tried to interrupt him, tapping him on the shoulder with his cane and telling him to hold. Cook ignored him and started again, at which point Charles tapped him again, hard enough that he broke the silver tip of the cane on his back. When it fell to the floor, Charles waited for someone, maybe Cook, to pick it up for him. He was a king. But no one did. Cook simply continued reading, while Charles got out of his chair and stooped to pick it up. It was a humiliating gesture, which everyone, including Charles, fully understood as such. Cook carried on without interruption. It took ten minutes for Cook to get through the entire thing. The charge accused him of betraying the trust of his subjects by attempting to govern without according to law or parliament, in an attempt to, quote, erect and uphold in himself an unlimited and tyrannical power to rule according to his will and to overthrow the rights and liberties of the people, end quote. He had then, quote, traitorously and maliciously levied war against the present parliament and the people, end quote. He then compounded his crimes by continuing his plotting with the Marquis of Ormond, the Irish Confederates, and his son Prince Charles, with the intention of bringing a third war to England. He was nothing less than, quote, a tyrant, traitor, and murderer, and a public and implacable enemy to the Commonwealth of England, end quote. Charles sat and listened while the charge was read out, and when Bradshaw asked the king how he would plead, guilty or not guilty, the king laughed in his face. Instead of filling his intended role, he veered off script. Quote, I would know by what power I have been called hither. It was exactly the question which had worried Cromwell that morning, and Bradshaw echoed the advice of Henry Martin. This court was proceeding, quote, in the name of the people of England, of which you are elected king, end quote. Now Charles went on the offensive against this blatant constitutional revisionism, quote, England was never an elective kingdom, but a hereditary kingdom for near these thousand years. 
Charles went on to attack their legitimacy, quote, I do not come here as submitting to the court. I will stand as much for the privilege of the House of Commons, rightly understood, as any man here whatsoever. I see no House of Lords here that may constitute a Parliament. Let me see a legal authority warranted by the word of God, the Scriptures, or warranted by the constitutions of the kingdom, and I will answer, end quote. Of course, the court couldn't provide any of that, and the king knew it. With Henry Martin's defence clearly failing to convince Charles, and many of the murmuring spectators as well, Bradshaw called a recess. Charles was removed and put back in custody for the day. The court reconvened on the 22nd, and then the 23rd of January, and still progress could not be made. Every time Bradshaw or Cook attempted to get the king to plead, guilty or not guilty, they tried seven times. He refused them, and each time attacked the court's legitimacy with pinpoint attacks. One time he pointed out that the House of Lords was a judicial court, but the House of Lords wasn't putting him on trial. His judges were mostly army officers or members of the House of Commons. Quote, The Commons of England was never a court of judicature. I would know how they came to be so. End quote. Through these arguments, Charles was insisting that he was actually the one upholding the ancient laws of England, in the face of this illegitimate, heretical, and illegal court. Quote, If it were only my particular case, I would have satisfied myself with the protestation I made the last time I was here, against the legality of the court, and that a king cannot be tried by any superior jurisdiction on earth. But it is not my case alone. It is the freedom and the liberty of the people of England, and do you pretend what you will, I stand more for their liberties. For if power without law may make laws, may alter the fundamental laws of the kingdom, I do not know what subject he is in England that can be sure of his life or anything he calls his own. After three formal and public sessions, the king had refused four times to accept the authority of the court and plead guilty or not guilty. On the 24th and 25th of January, the witnesses against the king were examined and the evidence was laid before the judges. The witnesses were a mixed bunch and not the strongest for the prosecution. The court heard several witness statements, including someone who saw Charles encourage the sacking of Leicester. It also included the man who painted the pole on which the king mounted his standard in August 1642, usually seen as the start of the First Civil War. Others recalled times they saw the king wearing armour, encouraging his troops before a battle, or otherwise being witnessed in the act of levying war. Charles was reportedly contemptuous of all of this, pulling faces and scoffing at much of it. He might have taken it a bit more seriously if Cromwell had managed to turn Hamilton back in December, but oh well. Then it came to the evidence, and Michael Braddock notes that presenting the evidence to the judges was a bit silly because the judges were the ones who had collected the evidence. Cook was telling the judges what they already knew, and Cook knew they knew, because they'd told him to tell them. But trials have evidence, and judges hear evidence, and they were desperate to look like legitimate judges in a legitimate trial. So, they heard the evidence. The judges found themselves convinced by their own evidence, and established a seven-man committee to draft the sentence of death. On the 27th of January, Charles was brought before the court again, and once again asked to plead guilty or not guilty. He refused, for the fifth time. 
But if his resistance was not an act of self-martyrdom, and actually intended as a negotiating tactic, he seems to have realised that he'd pushed too far. After refusing to plead, he requested an opportunity to address both Houses of Parliament, Lords and Commons, and though he was still refused to recognise the court's authority, he made sure his request didn't deny it either. What he would say to the assembled Parliament, we'll never know. Some, like Gentles, suggest that the King might have accepted defeat and offered his abdication. I'm not so sure. It's entirely believable that this was one last throw of the dice to get all the Lords and the Commons, including its purged members, into one room to seize the political initiative. It would be the best support for the Royalist cause Charles could ask for. What better example of social anarchy could the King show? These radicals had him, and by extension the monarchy and the entire social hierarchy of England, over a barrel. If they didn't agree to terms now, who knew what they'd do? But we'll never know, because Bradshaw refused his request. Then came the sixth and seventh opportunities for the king to plead, and he refused both times. By this point, the patience of the judges had worn out. Despite the king's stubbornness, they had heard witness testimony, they had read the evidence, and they had a sentence. Bradshaw gave his closing remarks, quote, There is a contract and a bargain made between the king and his people, and your oath is taken. And certainly, sir, the bond is reciprocal, end quote. He criticised the king's refusal to acknowledge the court, quote, You disavow us as a court, and truth is, all along, from the first time you were pleased to disavow and disown us, the court needed not to have heard you one word, end quote. Then the clerk read out the sentence. It attacked Charles as a monarch who had been entrusted with limited powers, but who had then illegally and tyrannically surpassed them. When his subjects had resisted, he had levied war against his own people. After his defeat, he had been willing to instigate and support foreign invasion to restore himself to power. It included his refusal to engage with the trial, and therefore acknowledge the sovereignty of the people and his responsibilities to them. Therefore, quote, Upon serious and mature deliberation, this court is in judgment and conscience satisfied that he, the said Charles Stuart, is guilty of levying war against the said Parliament and the people. After repeating the charges, it concluded, quote, For all which treasons and crimes this court doth adjudge that he, the said Charles Stuart, as a tyrant, traitor, murderer, and public enemy to the good people of this nation, shall be put to death by the severing of his head from his body, end quote. Charles's reaction was to try and speak, to reject this judgment, and finally engage with the proceedings. He requested to speak, but Bradshaw refused him once again. It was too late. The sentence had been read out. He was already dead in law. Bradshaw ordered the condemned to be removed to the passionate chanting of the watching soldiers who were crying out, execution, justice, execution. Others in the galleries sobbed and wailed as Charles was led out of the chamber. Reactions to the sentence flooded in. Fairfax, who, remember, had refused to take part in the trial, was approached by a delegation of Dutch ambassadors, who sought to find a solution which would keep Charles's head. The Scottish commissioners in London wrote to both Fairfax and Cromwell, urging them to call off the regicide. Charles was their king too, after all, and the English had no right to unilaterally execute the King of Scots. 
Fairfax appears to have tried to postpone the execution at a council of war, but he found his words hit a resolute wall. Cromwell and Ireton would not be moved. Army unity was now dependent on the king's death, and Fairfax's authority among the officers was no longer absolute. An execution, of course, requires a death warrant, and a total of 59 of the judges signed it. The final tally included 19 army officers, including, of course, Oliver Cromwell and Henry Ireton, but also the king's former wardens, Edward Warley and Thomas Harrison, the purges of Parliament, Thomas Pride and Sir Hardress Waller, and respected veterans like William Goff and Colonel Oakey, but not Fairfax, Major General Skippen or Colonel Fleetwood. And if you're imagining this was a solemn occasion, think again. Charles Spencer reports that Cromwell and the radical MP Henry Martin occupied themselves during the signing by flicking their pens at each other, hurling the ink like bored kids in class. Not all the men who had been present at the trial and vocally assented to the sentence signed the document. 67 vocally assented to the sentence, but only 59 signed. Many of them had to be made to sign it. On the day of the sentence and the following day, Cromwell actively pursued those commissioners who were attempting to dodge their duty, and I mean that literally. When a group of commissioned MPs slipped by him into the House of Commons, Cromwell chased after them, shouting, quote, Those that are gone in shall set their hands. I will have their hands now. End quote. While these legal niceties took place, the king prepared himself for martyrdom. Charles burned what papers he had, somehow avoiding the guards that now watched his every move. He wrote to his sons. To the princes James and Henry, he urged them not to accept any deal with Parliament to place themselves on the throne ahead of their eldest brother. To Prince Charles himself, he wrote a 5,000-word screed, which one biographer describes as full of self-righteousness and self-pity, and his true epitaph. In it, he seems to have learnt nothing. He urged his heir to stand by the established church and resist any further reformation. The, quote, devil of reformation doth commonly turn himself into an angel of reformation, end quote. And he miserably complained that he had not been quick enough to see through the fake compliance of Presbyterians in England and elsewhere and to root out the sedition hidden behind it. He also urged Prince Charles to stand by his prerogative to overrule the written law because, quote, there being nothing worse than a legal tyranny, end quote. His fall had come about not by any overreach or stubbornness on his part, but because he had failed to see, quote, the wolves in sheep's clothing, who had sought to throw down the established church and the rule of law. Self-righteousness and self-pity indeed. Charles found spiritual relief from the former Bishop of London, William Juxon who was permitted to minister to him, and he got some emotional relief on the 29th, when he was allowed a visit from two of his children still in England, the 13-year-old Princess Elizabeth and the 8-year-old Prince Henry. He told Elizabeth, who was, of course, sobbing, quote, Sweetheart, you will forget this. She denied it, quote, I shall never forget this. I shall never forget it whilst I live. To his youngest son, he was more practical. Sitting the boy on his knee, he told him, quote, They will cut off my head, and perhaps make thee a king. But mark what I say, you must not be a king so long as your brothers Charles and James do live. They will cut off your brothers' heads when they catch them, and cut off thy head too, at last. And therefore I charge you, do not be made a king by them. The eight-year-old boy replied, I will be torn in pieces first, 
Elizabeth recorded that, quote, these words coming so unexpectedly from so young a child rejoiced my father exceedingly, end quote. Then Charles gave them his remaining jewellery, his children were shepherded away from him, and he turned to prayer to distract himself from his grief. The morning of the execution, Charles was moved from St. James's Palace to the Palace of Whitehall, his place of death. He was moved on foot, with a guard of soldiers flying their standards and beating drums. Apparently, Charles had a pleasant chat with his current warden, Colonel Tomlinson, and he was also accompanied by former Bishop Juxon. The execution would take place outside the banqueting house, on a scaffold draped in black. The condemned would walk out of the hall through a doorway, specially knocked through the wall, from under a ceiling decorated with the apotheosis of James I. This spectacular mural by Peter Paul Rubens took years to plan, and in 1632, after Charles made some final amendments, it was painted and installed by the Flemish artist. To quote the Royal Collections Trust, it celebrates James I's wise rule and peaceful reign, particularly his involvement in the union of the crowns that brought Scotland and England under one royal house. More broadly, the scheme was designed to enhance the prestige of the House of Stuart, emphasising the fundamental notion of divine rule by depicting the king's apotheosis and the symbols of monarchy, end quote. I have to wonder what Charles thought as he looked up at it, waiting for his cue to enter and then exit the stage. Soldiers and cavalry surrounded the site, but there was still plenty of space for spectators who flooded in their hundreds. Executions were always a public spectacle, fun for the whole family, but this was something else entirely. Famously, the 30th of January 1649 was an especially cold day, with parts of the Thames freezing over. The spectators arrived early in the morning, but it took until two in the afternoon before events really began. The crowds didn't understand why there was this delay, but backstage, some bright spark had realised that inconvenient truth of kingship I mentioned last time. As soon as they took Charles I's head, Charles II would become king. The rump and the army hadn't yet settled on the question of monarchy, and so to buy time a new ordinance was passed to block the proclamation of the king's successor. To proclaim the new king, as had happened with every succession, more or less, for centuries, was now treason. It was a legal placeholder designed to buy time, but it was enough for now. With that settled, the doors of the banqueting house opened and outstepped the condemned king. Under his doublet, Charles wore two shirts to better resist the bitter cold and famously so that he didn't shiver. This would be mistaken as fear, and Charles wasn't afraid. He'd come to terms with his death. He was taken aback by the low height of the block. It was only six inches high, so he'd effectively have to lie flat to put his neck on it. A request to have a taller one brought out was denied. This one was surrounded by chains and manacles, just in case the condemned had to be restrained. They weren't needed in this case. Charles gave a short speech in which he proclaimed his innocence of the charges, begged God to forgive the men who had ordered his death, and insisted that he died, quote, a Christian according to the profession of the Church of England, end quote. Most of the crowd could not hear his words, but Tomlinson and some official reporters heard it all and made a record. When someone began to touch the axe, the king paused and asked them to stop in case they blunted the carefully sharpened blade, quote, hurt not the axe that may hurt me, end quote. He only had to think of his grandmother, Mary Queen of Scots, 
whose own execution had required multiple blows of a dull axe. He asked Colonel Hacker, the most senior officer on the scaffold, to make sure he wasn't put through unnecessary pain, just as someone else started to touch the axe as well, and he was less patient, quote, Take heed of the axe, pray, take heed of the axe. He forgave his executioner, whose identity was hidden behind a mask. He asked if his famously long hair would be a problem, and the anonymous man confirmed it would be. So Charles took a cap from Juxon and pushed his hair into it, keeping his neck clear. Juxon then spoke to him, quote, There is but one stage more. This stage is turbulent and troublesome, but it is a short one. You may consider it will soon carry you a very great way. It will carry you from earth to heaven, and there you shall find a great deal of cordial joy and comfort, end quote. The king accepted this comfort gratefully, saying, quote, I go from a corruptible to an incorruptible crown, where no distance can be, no disturbance in the world. Juxon agreed, quote, You are exchanged from a temporal to an eternal crown. A good exchange, end quote. Charles then knelt, said his prayers, and gave the prearranged signal. He thrust out his hands at the side, and the axe fell. In one strike, the king was beheaded. All sources report a spontaneous moan or groan or sigh coming from the spectators as their monarch's head fell into the basket and was held up by the second, also masked, executioner. Some rushed forward to dab cloths and handkerchiefs into his royal blood, but few got past the soldiers. With the deed done and witnessed, the signal was given and mounted soldiers moved through the packed crowd to disperse them. Within half an hour, the soldiers had cleared the spectators away. Charles's head was sewn back onto his body, and it was taken in a velvet-lined coffin not to Westminster Abbey, as was tradition, but to St George's Chapel at Windsor Castle. Better there, behind castle walls and locked gates and away from eulogising mourners than the very public abbey. Cromwell is reported to have stood at Charles's coffin and muttered, Cruel necessity. The Governor of Windsor refused to allow the Book of Common Prayer to be read, and the ceremony was conducted mostly in silence. Charles I was 48 years old, and had ruled England, Ireland and Scotland for nearly 24 years. Thank you for listening to this guest episode. If you want to hear about how historians view the trial, whether it was a show trial with Charles's death as an inevitability, or if it was a genuine attempt to force the king to accept the revolution, that's in the full episode of Season 2, Episode 72. Likewise, my judgement of Charles I as a king, and how much of his fate lies at his own feet, is in the second half of Season 2, Episode 73. Thank you to William for letting me speak to you today. Pax is now into Season 3, with the new Republican Government of England set to impose its authority over Ireland, Scotland, and its growing colonial empire. If you want to give that a listen, go to pod.link slash pax, or search Pax Britannica in whatever app you're listening on right now. Hi, I'm Mike Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we have today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end. Please subscribe for free. We're available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast.
My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.